established in 1909, the Bureau of Economic Geology is the oldest research unit at the University of Texas at Austin. The Bureau is the State Geological Survey of Texas and has been an integral part of the development of the state's economic success through the years. Their mission is to serve society by conducting objective, impactful, and integrated geoscience research on relevant energy, environmental, and economic issues. Their vision is to be a trusted scientific voice to academia, industry, government, and the public. Bureau researchers spearhead basic and applied research projects globally in energy resources and economics, coastal and environmental studies, land resources and use, geologic and mineral mapping, hydrogeology, geochemistry, and subsurface nanotechnology. The Bureau provides advisory, educational, technical, and informational services related to the resources and geology of Texas, the nation, and the world. Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode, another podcast of EGOs and the MRCI. Today I have two very special guests from the Bureau of Economic Geology in Austin, Texas. Today we have with us Dr. Sue Havorka and Dr. Alex Bump. Both of them work in the CCUS research group. Hi guys, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Sue, could you please begin this podcast today? Could you please tell our audience an introduction about yourself? Perhaps share with us your current title, your career background, any goals that you still have remaining, and some passions. Thanks. Um, I, I, uh, I've been working at the Bureau of Economic Geology since I was a grad student. Um, we, we do a lot of uh, applied research uh, to benefit uh, the, the well-being of, of people on the planet. So I've worked in energy and I've worked in water. And some decade, I was working on, on water in the Edwards uh, Aquifer, which is a main aquifer in central Texas, and a beautiful thing with springs. Mm -hmm. I love springs. Uh, and uh, we started realizing that uh, um, intermittency of, of flow was, was related to climate. So I got very involved and concerned about climate change and its impact on water. Mm -hmm. And this new idea came up of um, uh, the climate, uh, mitigating climate change by capturing CO2 and putting it underground. And I thought it would hurt the water. Mm -hmm. so I, got, I, I thought I was going to protect water by, um, by uh, not putting CO2 underground at first, um, I, I had to be converted to this was an important way to remediate water. So I'm a senior research scientist. I have a background in, um, in analysis of sediments, especially to understand flow things. Um, and I, I'll take flow of any fluid, but at, at the moment, my favorite fluid flow is, is CO2 um, to mitigate the atmosphere. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Sue, for that. And Alex, uh, could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So maybe something about uh, your current title, your career background, any goals or passions that you have? Thanks, Rochelle. Um, you know, I technically I'm a research science associate and no one knows what that is. So I usually introduce <laughs> myself as a geologist, mm -hmm. which is true. Um, 
my background is in originally in physics, um, but as a grad student in structural geology and tectonics, which is effectively the study of how mountains are built. Um, and I went from grad school to better part of two decades in petroleum exploration, prospecting, drilling wells, and working on new ventures all over the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I sometimes used to describe it as a treasure hunt <laughs> where you get paid to go play in the mountains and solve puzzles, um, which is true. It was fantastic. The geoscience and the people were just wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I struggled to find meaning in the core mission that is finding more oil. And there's no question that the world runs on it and it's fueled the information age. It's lifted billions from poverty, literally. Our civilization runs on it. And full disclosure, I still use it. <laughs> I'm grateful to those who deliver it. Yeah. But, you know, I every accumulating headline of killer heat waves and homeless polar bears just weighed on me. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up on a farm in Vermont. I am a passionate outdoorsman. Outdoors is my salvation. And there came a point with oil exploration where I just couldn't see a forward path that really excited me mm -hmm. and realized that I wanted to put, you know, we need the people who still deliver oil and gas, but I wanted to put my own work towards something more forward looking. Um, so I, you know, <laughs> there was a, a lot of late nights and family discussions that I'm shortcutting here, but long story short, um, both my wife and I quit our jobs cold turkey. Mm -hmm. left the UK where we were living, took our kids on a year-long road trip around the world, um, thinking about what else we were going to do, and of course, having a fantastic adventure while we were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but long story short, the result of that networking was discovering CCS and friends of friends led me to Sue and the Gulf Coast Carbon Center, where I have been very happily employed for a couple of years, a bit more than two years now. Um, in effect, repurposing the petroleum skills, that is putting the same stuff, the subsurface skills and the exploration skills to work identifying storage sites and de-risking the, the critical elements, finding new ways to do that. So it's a wonderful fit. Mm -hmm. a, a long and circuitous path, but I wouldn't trade it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. It's super inspiring and I hope there's other um petroleum people out there that maybe they've had that thought in their head and, you know, for a million reasons why you wouldn't want to do it, but I'm really happy to hear that you took the plunge and you're happy with, with the results. Many companies are, petroleum companies are realizing that their future involves, involves mitigation too. Mm -hmm. that they're interested in being carbon management companies, not, not just producing carbon, but also managing carbon is a, one of the roads to the future. So mm -hmm. um, um, it's, a, it's a growing trend. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I am not alone in this. Many of my friends and peers have uh, pivoted toward CCS or climate-related work in one way or another, either in petroleum companies or in new ventures. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sue, could you tell us a bit more about... Um, major milestones within the CCUS and CCS field. Do you have any best research breakthroughs in your career that you could share with us and maybe some of the difficult moments as well? 1998, um, just with some feasibility studies to take a look at work paper studies, and that, I was sort of surprised how feasible it was. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I thought that we didn't know enough about the subsurface to do this safely. And so we started compiling a database and we found out I was wrong, that we have a great deal of information so many places about the subsurface, not only from oil and gas, but even areas without oil and gas, like um, the places that our friends at Mattel work where they go deeper than the oil and gas. There's, those are still sufficiently well known to, to host storage. So it was educational for me in the paper study. The most exciting thing that's happened was in uh, about 2002, uh, my the, the folks who've been funding our paper studies said, well, are you going to go to the field <laughs> and show that, demonstrate that this is feasible? And I was a little surprised because I'd always been a water person. And my interest in the field had always been to sample water quality. And, you know, we did that with very small rigs, and small budgets, and plastic pipe, PVC pipe. Um, so the idea that to go to the deep subsurface and actually do experiments was quite radical. And mm -hmm. getting to the field to do experiments, we did our first experiment in 2004. Um, uh, there's short injection, but with a lot of research tools and a lot of research collaborators, it's incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. um, incredibly exciting to, to test your hypothesis and and, uh, and uh, make it and and. Make new, make new knowledge, add new confidence. Um, so every time, and we're now working getting to the field with a number of companies here and there, up and, up and down, including all over the world. And, and again, to actually do the deed, very exciting, so much fun. Uh, geologists don't get very many chances to run experiments. Mm -hmm. when you have a hypothesis and you actually try it because much of the ge experiments that geologists have things that the earth has done in the past so we're often trying to back calculate what happened here by looking at the record so to, it's a lot of fun to go out and um, do experiments and and uh, put instruments in the ground and make measurements yeah yeah do you have any um like really exciting moments or maybe some difficult moments when you got those results back um yeah, and the the I guess the most exciting moment was it's when you I just have modeled what's going to happen. Or so you're injecting CO2 you know, at one well and you're expecting it to arrive at another well. And mm -hmm. You put out all kinds of kit um, to measure changes in pressure and temperature and and chemistry and tracers and and um, um, and you're waiting and waiting. You made a prediction and you're you know roll of the dice based on 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 your your best uh, calculations, mm -hmm. and when the when the CO two actually arrives, you get on the phone and tell your teammates it's arriving. <laughs> it's like um, yeah. you know, uh, pretty exciting. Um, but the most the most scary point is when you don't know what you're doing, and especially someone else is watching. Yeah. So, um, so I, I invited. Um, we're trying to help people understand how CCS works. So a lot of the point of these demonstrations is to be accessible and let people come out. Um, and if you let them come out for real, when you're really doing something, you don't know what's going to happen for sure. Yeah. Um, so so uh, one time we had um, uh, PBS coming to visit us and at the site with the, with the camera and so forth. And I'm on the phone because we have, we're running a tool into the well. And it went down the well and it wouldn't come back, <laughs> and, which is scary for everyone. I've lost something of high value 
in my well, which is, you know, the well is only seven and a half inches in diameter, right? Yeah. And a piece of kit that's, that's very expensive has gone down and we can't get it back. And so the PBS guys are saying, you know, thinking this is a CCS specific hazard and saying, no, this is what happens. This is, this is not, a, this is just plumbing. Yeah. It's an ordinary problem. We're having the same kind of thing that if you've ever had plumbing in your house, you've had this problem, but something went down mm-hmm. and you couldn't get, you can't get it back yet. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to help them understand that this was, this drama was not condemning, uh, not condemning our program, but, um, but uh, something that we, it, it's, a, it's a plumbing problem. And yeah. we did overcome it and yeah. collect data later that day, which was much less dramatic than, than the struggle. <laughs> That's great. Alex, you had mentioned uh, early on that, you know, you had this transformation of a petroleum geologist going into a carbon capture geologist. And do you have any specific advice for other geologists that are looking to to do the same? So for example, how could um, a geoscientist take their petroleum skill set and transform that into uh, something CCS related? Good question. Um, You know, there's sort of three phases to my learning curve on this. So I'll give you those and then I'll show you how to, or tell you how to shortcut it. Um, Phase one is the naive, how different can it be, right? (laughs) It's still subsurface geology, it's still fluids, you're just it's different fluid, sure, going a different direction, but reservoirs and seals, how different can it be, mm-hmm. right? That's naive phase one. Phase two is the reality check, <laughs> <laughs> where you realize that actually, you know, the, there are little differences, but they ripple through the entire system, mm-hmm. and it really is a bit of a different beast. So you are injecting, which means that pressure increases, and you're injecting at industrial rates, which means that your access to individual pores um, is spotty. Right? The CO2 will find the, the highest permeability streaks and it will follow those and bypass other things. And pressure buildup will limit you long before um, you've accessed all of the pore space. Other thing is, of course, you don't want it back. Mm-hmm. So you're not restricted to the same kind of high quality reservoirs and buoyant accumulations that we look for in oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Um, you can trap it in dissolution. You can trap it in pore throats and in tiny little traps that you know, you'd never look at in oil and gas. And this happens in oil and gas. We call it migration loss. Mm-hmm. It's the petroleum lost in migration from its source into the, the trap that we find it in. Um, but of course, it's not something we can ever produce. So we sort of don't pay it a whole lot of attention. So that's phase two, it's the reality check. And it's realizing that, you know, it is a different beast. <laughs> I didn't know quite as much as I thought I did. Phase three is the kind of reassuring one where you do start to figure out what's going on and how CCS works. And it's the effectively the, life, the lifelong learning journey of growing competence. And you never get to the end of that, mm-hmm. um, which is happily where I am now. So, If I were giving you advice and trying to shortcut this, surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. Um, Being part of the Gulf Coast Carbon Center is absolutely the best thing I ever did. And picking up 
picking up a new field generally mm -hmm. um, having people who have deep experience and are happy to talk and share that experience is just amazing more generally you know be curious take every chance you get to learn mm -hmm. um, and try it right? we learn i tell students and i do a lot of teaching i tell students we learn or we rem remember about eight percent maybe ten percent of what we hear 12 to 15 percent of what we see and 80 percent or more of what we do so there is no substitute for just trying stuff and trying to actually do and ultimately that's how we learn mm -hmm. humans learn by trying and making mistakes mm -hmm. so try it make mistakes and surround yourself with people who will tell you when you've made a mistake and how to make it right absolutely it's probably good advice for life in general yeah <laughs> That's a very good point for CCS too. And sometimes people are waiting for to try to get their the perfect project, and sometimes the lo localities or or industries or or um, our governments are waiting to find a perfect project. But the part about um, starting with modest ambition right now, all the CO two is going up the stack into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So if you can do a modest project, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's still it's still going to have a benefit. And you learn so much. Your confidence just goes up by actually doing it, um, not not trying to get it everything all perfect before we make a decision. And we need to act on the atmosphere right now. So what Alex said about his personal path is very much the same story for the, the mm -hmm. implementation of carbon capture and geologic storage. We need to get out there and be doing it because we'll get so much better at it quickly by doing it. Yeah. Absolutely. Sue, could you please explain more to our audience a bit more about the subtopic of CCS monitoring? So maybe tell our audience what it is in a general sense and why it's important. And then also, have there been any major uh, recent technology advances within the monitoring field? The... Um... And we would, I was just saying we need to learn about uh, from our what we do. We mm -hmm. need to get better every time. So uh, one of the tools of, of monitoring is to, is to collect enough observations so that you can see what you did right mm -hmm. and what you could make better. And certainly if you're doing something wrong, you could find out about it and stop it before it caused trouble. Um, so the things that matter for uh, providing secure storage in the deep subsurface are that, uh, that you can continue injecting um, so that you have enough space and especially you can inject with enough pressure and rate so that you can sustain injection. You can keep taking the CO2 that you took today. You can keep taking it all next year and back for the next bunch of decades because that's important to link the system together. So monitoring will be monitored to make sure that you can accept the pressure um, and continue accepting the pressure. And sometimes this is referred to as tracking the CO2 boom front mm -hmm. in the subsurface to make sure that how is CO2 spreading out and as you plan and acceptable. The second thing you have to do is make sure that uh, what you put down stays down, um, that uh, you're uh, adding um, to the cost of energy in some way by doing the capture and, and compression and putting the CO2 back and so you, to get your money's worth out, you need to make sure it stays down. Um, so you monitor to make sure that um, 
that there's no uh, losses. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we don't expect it to pop right up to the surface right now. So we, we want, but we want it not pop up to the surface in a thousand years either. Mm -hmm. um, we want it to stay down for a very long period of time um, in order to get that atmospheric benefit. So we make measurements to, for example, um, uh, you, you can uh, um, measure measure uh, pressure in the in the zone above the, the storage. Right? So you're injecting in one zone and you go up to the next zone above and you measure pressure to make sure that there's no leakage even in the deep subsurface from one zone to another. So that you're showing isolation that's very high quality and will be sustained for for um, thousands, many thousands of years. So that the benefit is accrued. Um, you can also make measurements um, because people are concerned. So something, a concern that that's held by the stakeholders, the residents, or the uh, people who are funding the project has to be listened to seriously. And mm -hmm. they deserve um, to have measurements made that give them confidence and are transparent. So they may have, they may have something in particular that they're worried about in the water, for example. They've had concerns about water and you want um, make sure that, that the project is not harming the water. Um, CO2 itself is not very harmful to water, but if you energize brine from the deep subsurface, it could harm the water. So, yeah. Um, one make measurements to make sure people are are um, comfortable with the project. So it's a negotiation. Sure. Breakthroughs of monitoring. Uh, we're getting better and better. Uh, the same kind of thing you observe in your cell phone. Something that used to Weigh, weigh pounds and have to be strapped to the wall and now weigh ounces and be carried in your pocket. All the instrumentation is smaller, lighter, smarter. Um, it's tougher. And so you can think that you used to have to put, place out instruments. Now you can run fiber and, and that fiber and, and fiber optic cable and yeah. synthesize the fiber itself to um, making measurements have and get back very high resolution information at much less lower cost. So there's mm -hmm. kind of there's huge technological breakthroughs that yeah. um that both increase security and decrease costs. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Alex, could you please explain a bit more to our audience uh, about the subtopic of CCS geologic characterization? So that would be something that would ultimately determine uh, the selection of a valid site for carbon storage. If you had to pick the geologically perfect reservoir trap seal to store carbon, maybe not giving it economic considerations, what would you ultimately want to pick? Uh, good question. Um, yeah, there are a few boundary conditions to this. We're, and for background, I don't know how much the audience knows, but we're storing CO2 and subsurface fluids generally, be it water or oil and gas or whatever. Um, it's stored in the pore space between sand grains. Right? So it's, it, think of the subsurface a, a bit like a sponge mm -hmm. with connected open volumes, but it's not a big tank or a big um, a cavern of any sort. It's just the little spaces between sand grains. And the boundary condition for CO2 is that we have to store it deeper than 800 meters mm -hmm. um, because that's roughly where it becomes a, 
a dense fluid okay. and allows you to store a lot of it in these yeah. tiny little pore spaces. The other boundary condition, two boundary conditions by law, are no endangerment of fresh water, mm -hmm. uh, however deep that may go, and of course, no leakage. So, you know, we're looking at fruit reservoirs deeper than 800 meters and usually significantly deeper because as you go deeper, the, the pressure increases and you can store CO2 even in even denser phases. And of course, you've got um, the opportunity for more seals, that is um, the geology that retains CO2 in the subsurface. Mm -hmm. So that's the background. As Sue said, you asked me about perfect reservoir. <laughs> I'll come to that in a second, but it's worth emphasizing, we don't need perfect. Mm -hmm. And we're really not chasing perfect. Um, what we need is basically three things out of the subsurface. One, you need what we call injectivity, mm -hmm. which is just the ability to inject a reservoir capable of taking CO2 at industrial rates. And that can be because it's highly permeable or because it's really thick or a combination of the two. Second thing that we really need is capacity. We need a lot of pore space, right? So some sand, sand bodies go on for a very long way. Mm -hmm. um, think about uh, if anyone has ever been to Utah and watched the deserts of Utah and the beautiful red sandstones, <laughs> you know how far some of these things go, mm -hmm. right? Or the outback of Australia for that matter. You can think of how far some sandstones go. Those would make good reservoirs if they were very deeply, of course, and covered by a seal. Equally, we know that there are some others that are like you know, little stream channels that have a little ribbon of sand, but don't go very far. Those would be pretty poor. Mm -hmm. So number two is you need pore space or capacity. And the third is that you need retention. You need the, the capacity to contain CO2. We call it a confining zone or a confining interval. Um, something that is impermeable or very low permeability that keeps CO2 from rising through it. Mm -hmm. right? CO2 being a buoyant fluid. So your question about perfect reservoir, we can make this work in all kinds of different reservoirs, um, and we do. Mm -hmm. But if I had to pick, if I had to describe the ideal, it looks actually very similar to Sleipner, which is a Norwegian uh, storage project, CO2 storage project in offshore in the North Sea that has been storing since 1996, about a megaton per year. Um, it stores in the Utsira sand, which is the name of the formation, and it's a really thick, high permeability sand with mm -hmm. good injectivity and a giant extent. So you can dissipate pressure more or less forever. Mm. Um, it has finite boundaries, of course, but think North Sea scale. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big sand body. So a bit of injection, even many megatons for worth of injection, pressure dissipates over a wide area and results in very little pressure rise. The other thing the Utsira has is some internal baffles, right? some streaks of lower permeability, and they serve to spread the CO2 out mm -hmm. and create these sort of small accumulations that then occupy more of the pore space. And without those, CO2 just goes to the top of the reservoir and, and spreads out in a very thin pancake. So baffles, internal baffles, actually help to spread it out, use more of the pore space. But that really is 
kind of your dream reservoir. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's a surprising number of those around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, in oil and gas, we look for perfect because yeah. you really need perfect in order to get a producible oil and gas accumulation. CCS, we don't want it back. It doesn't need to be a perfect situation where you retain large fractions of mobile CO2. In fact, you know, if you don't retain large fractions, if you spread it out into very small pools, it's more secure. Um, mm -hmm. And not wanting it back, that's a good thing. Yeah. So we can make this work in a lot of places. But of course, we have our dreams, just like anyone. <laughs> we dream of perfect. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time and everything that you had uh, to share with our audience. So sincere thank you. A pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's podcast features individuals from the Regional Initiative to Accelerate CCUS Deployment in the Midwest and Northeastern U.S., the Southeast Regional Carbon Utilization and Storage Partnership, and lastly, the Plains Carbon Dioxide Reduction Partnership Initiative to Accelerate CCUS Deployment.